uh, let me invite your attention to Genesis chapter 35 and 36. We're going to revisit this text tonight, and I want to address the subject, What Must Go for God to Come? What Must Go for God to Come? And I'm going to talk about a great, mighty manifestation of the power and the presence of God tonight. But as you're turning there, don't forget as you leave, the invite cards. Please pick those up and distribute them far and wide, and we will greatly appreciate that. Also, be looking sometime Tuesday or Wednesday for an announcement about the placement of WOW at 6 o'clock or 6.07. We may end up moving back to Building D. I want to talk to student, uh, our staff about it, excuse me, and uh, I don't mind talking to students about it either, but especially our staff, and uh, we may be back in Building D for WOW next Wednesday night, but I'll talk to staff about that, be looking for some announcement from us. Let me say also, I'm very, very grateful for the great work of the Great Great Commission Facilities Committee. Richard Gray gave a great, great report Sunday morning. It was marvelous. He shared it at the deacons' retreat with our deacons in their last meeting and this uh, past uh, Sunday morning, and I really, really appreciate uh, him. I appreciate their work. They're doing a good job, and uh, I'm excited about them. Uh, I shared my own heart, my own vision with our deacons in our last meeting, and we had a very good meeting during that time. Now, sometimes we have some real open discussion and sometimes some frank discussion, and that's good and it's healthy, and I like it, and I want that kind of atmosphere. Uh, Most of the big things we have done here at Beach Haven the last five and a half years that have worked have come because, um, this may surprise you, but I happened to listen to a few people, and God got all over my heart and uh, with uh, their words. And so we've done some neat things, and these have been some of the most productive areas of growth in our church. Uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. And so our deacons had a great meeting last meeting. I shared with them my vision. I gave them 10 reasons why I was thinking the way I was thinking. And when I was done, they applauded uh, what I said, and they passed a resolution of support for Richard Gray's uh, report. And uh, in my... um, uh, Uh, whatever it was I shared with them, okay? So uh, I don't quite know what to call it. The vision statement, I guess, uh, about uh, some of our future needs with our buildings and facilities. So uh, be praying for them. Ask God to help them and give them guidance and direction. And I am thrilled with them and their unity. Now, real soon, I'll be inviting adult Sunday school classes to my home to share with you what's on my heart about um, our work with the Great Commission's Facilities Committee. And uh, I'll be doing that. You'll be getting announcements and invitations really, really soon. Try to make the date. I've assigned a date to different Sunday school classes. I I can't leave that open to them. There's just too many of them. I wish I could. But do the best you can. Be there. And and if you can't and you want to come on another date, that's perfectly fine as well. Okay? But uh, I'm trying to get your Sunday school class back in my home. And I will not be asking you for any money there. Okay? I'm going to do it later, but I'm not going to ask you for it there, okay? So uh, please be aware of that. And it will be during the summer. That's a busy time, I know. But I will want to, uh, want to have you there and want you to hear my heart, and I want to hear from you as well. Well, uh, Genesis 35 and 36 will teach us tonight what has got to go for God to come. Ladies and gentlemen, back in the early 60s, uh, our schools by federal action, Supreme Court decision, expelled God from the schools. Now, 
he has uh, been smuggled in by students, and they've done a good job with that. We're grateful. But ladies and gentlemen, the moment they expelled God from our public schools, they also enrolled a high dose of chaos in many of them. Now, where you don't have chaos in public schools, you actually have some very godly Christian teachers, and there's a bit more freedom there. And where you've got freedom to be Christian, whether in a public or private school, you've got order, you've got discipline, you've got advancement in education, and all manner of wonderful things taking place. But wherever the hammer is laid down against the Christian faith in any public arena, what you have instead is all manner of chaos. And that's not only true in the public sphere, that's true in the private sphere. Oftentimes, major corporations are just as oppressive as the public sphere happens to be as well. That can be a problem. And then sometimes that's true for even families. I have known parents who have prohibited their children from speaking about faith, especially the older ones, to the younger ones. Opening the Word of God and sharing the faith with kids in the family. Well, they did it anyway. You know how kids can be. And uh, they, they communicated anyway. But the truth is, is that whenever we tell God no, God backs up. God will not, God will not go where faith is not present. He will not bless doubt. He will not bless unbelief. He will not bless those, those sorts of things. In other words, we've got a nation We've got families, we've got public entities, we've got private entities that God has taken his hand off according to Romans chapter 1. And therefore, we're suffering all manner of chaos in many, many places. What we need more than anything else is for God to come and inhabit the place where he wants to inhabit in these places. In other words, we need God to come. But there's some things that have got to go for God to come. And that happens in Genesis chapter 35 here in this text. Now, 2 Chronicles 7.14 has been a text that has really shaped the American experience. It did in 1740 with the First Great Awakening, which prepared the nation for the Revolutionary War and for the writing of the Constitution. And the fruit of that happened to be American freedom in the United States. Did also in um, 1792 with uh, the United States, and it launched the great missionary movement. It did also in 1858, which guided the nation and gave it the strength to endure the war that uh, erupted between the states. And then it did also in 1904, and I'll talk about that in just a few moments. We need God to come, but if God is not dominant with his presence and his power in our midst, if we are weak and if we are powerless and impotent, it is not God's fault. He said in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. In other words, there are conditions for that kind of movement from God. And God is always ready to send it. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that it is impossible, impossible to go before God on his terms, and to seek him in humility and repentance and faith and God not to come through in some way. It's impossible because he is faithful to his promises. All his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
Yes and amen, every last one of them. God will come through. So listen, if there isn't revival, if there's not a new day of power, if there's not a new mighty manifestation of his presence in our midst, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the fault of heaven. It's not the fault of God. Somewhere along the line, his people have not met the conditions. So he he has just said, my modus operandi, my mode of operation, the way I'm going to ordinarily operate is that when you come to me on my terms, I'm going to come through in my way every time. And that's why there's so many prayer promises in the Bible. Oh, it's a remarkable thing. Well, Genesis 35 and 36 happen to be a couple of texts that tell us uh, of some things that have got to go in order for God to come. Look with me in chapter 35, and it says there, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, Jacob has been backslidden for quite some time, probably about 10 years. He had an encounter with God by the brook of Jabbok, and he wrestled with God there, but that was after about a 20-year lapse. He moved instead of to Bethel to Shechem, and dwelt there, and all manner of evil broke out against his family. And his family broke out against area residents. And so he has been backslidden for about 10 years, and God comes to him in verse 35 and says, Hey, Joker, you know the thing I told you to do 10 years ago? I'm not letting you off the hook, and God never does. If God's ever called someone to ministry back a long time ago, that calling is still in force. See? If he did. God directed you to do something years ago. You didn't do it. That, this is what we're talking about here. That's what he said to Jacob. This is what I want you to do. He said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel. That's what he told him 10 years before. That's precisely what we've got here in this text. And so Jacob is to do what God told him 10 years ago. And look what he, how he responded in verse 2. He, he knows what needs to happen. He came to his household. And all who were with him and said, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Give public witness that you've changed, in other words. Well, that's what you've got in the text. And the rest of the text tells us what must go for God to come. And the first thing is this, and that is narcissism. Back at the end of chapter 33, um, the uh, text says in verse 18, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, but that wasn't where he was supposed to go. He went where he wanted to go and did not go where God wanted him to go. He was thinking of himself. He went to Shechem when he was supposed to go all the way to Bethel. Hey, do you remember the movie Toy Story? Whenever Buzz Lightyear falls out the window. Remember that? And he becomes vulnerable to that nasty neighborhood boy, Sid. You remember that? And you remember... um, the, uh, the difficulty the other toys had getting him up into the window. And they all responded with horror whenever Buzz Lightyear fell out the window and uh, had to put up with Sid. That's what they anticipated. Sid was going to get him and dress him up in a dress and rip his arms off and put some arm of some baby doll on him or something like that. That's what kind of deranged child that boy was next door to where the toys lived. But uh, in any case, uh, they are up. In that way, that they are up on the second story. They see Buzz Lightyear fall into Sid's yard, and do you remember Rex's response? He's horrified, and here's what he says. Now look, Buzz Lightyear is now vulnerable to Sid, that nasty neighborhood boy. 
And Rex says, oh no, now I have guilt. Buzz Lightyear is about to be decimated by Sid, the nasty neighborhood boy, and Rex is thinking about his own guilt. Sometimes that's all some people can do. They think of themselves, they think of church ministry, they think of leadership, they think of decisions only in terms, they think of worship only in terms of themselves and not the impact that it may have on others. And the problem is, is that they learn all sorts of New Testament terminology, the spiritual language, and use it to get their way. That's what we've got going on here in the text. Uh, 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 there, there would be justifiable reasons that Jacob would invent in his head for dwelling in Shechem instead of going to Bethel. But he's doing precisely what he wants to do. Listen to me. The day you want God to move mightily in your life is the day that you've got to set aside self. Slay it crucify it, bury it, hide it, forget about it, and when it rises back up again, repeat the process all over again, but set self aside completely and entirely. Narcissism has got to go. That's the first thing. Well, there's a second thing. Not only narcissism, but syncretism. Syncretism is the mixing of two convergent faiths and ideas and ideologies. And the Hindus are real... uh, 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 famous for doing this. Uh, In Hinduism, uh, they don't exclude any of the gods at all. They just take them all and mix them in. In fact, our Hindu friends will pay enormous respect to Jesus Christ as long as you do not say he is the only way to God. Then you've got to take all their 330 million deities and eliminate them. So when I'm sharing with the Hindu, I appreciate their respect for Christ, but it is a, it is a, it is a, um, well, their respect for Jesus Christ is not on par where Jesus wants it and his father wants it. So what they'll do is that they'll add Jesus to all the other deities, but they won't remove the other deities. And that is part of Hinduism. You just can't eliminate any God. You've got to keep adding to the 330 million. Now, before we start criticizing the Hindus, let's talk about the Americans. The human heart and the human soul is a factory of idols. The human heart is an idol factory, one theologian said. And this is what Jacob discovers. We read just a moment ago, verse number two. Jacob said to his household, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, the son of Isaac, Jacob, the one who had the vision and the dream of the ladder that reached from heaven to earth, Jacob, the one that wrestled with God at Peniel, Jacob, the one that heard from God to return to Bethel, Jacob, that has had multiple encounters with God, did not did not succeed in delivering that same faith to his family because in verse 2, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. You see, back uh, earlier in chapter 28, Rachel had taken the household gods from her father, and she had nursed them, she had hidden them, and then they got out, and then they disseminated, disseminated through the family. And by this time, Jacob has got to go to his entire household and tell them to eliminate what started with one person in the family, the mother, became the practice of his household household. 
is precisely what happened. So Jacob and his family have mixed faiths in life. Folks, that, that ha- that's happening in churches as well. That there is a sense, and I've watched this for a long time, that we've got to shape our words around the political climate of the day. And there's some subjects that are taboo and we don't talk about, even if the Scripture addresses them. See, It's a politically correct culture. And then we end up using the language of pop psychology and others to describe what's going on. And we take things that are sinful and foolish and make them morally neutral as if they're not a great offense to God. That's got to go if God's going to come. And so the PC culture and the pop psychology culture has made made inroads. I read the other day an article that uh, uh, posed the question, what we lost when we gave up hymnals. Really? How about we talk about what we gave up when we gave up the horse and buggy or when we gave up, my goodness, cassette tapes or something like that. You know, we we don't apply that same thinking in other places, but we will apply it to our preferences in worship is is precisely what happens. And so syncretism uh, can uh, infiltrate a Christian life. And so that's got to go for God to come. But there's a third thing, and that is hedonism. Verses 16 to 22, (coughs) we have a reference here to Rachel. Rachel passes away. Her first son, by the way, was who? Rachel's first son. She had two children. Benjamin was the second. The first one was Joseph. And Joseph happened to be what son to Jacob? His favorite, because he was, his mother was Jacob's favorite. Now, I believe uh, it was terribly wrong for Jacob to marry two women and to have two concubines. Well, I not only believe that, it's just entirely true. Um, and uh, monogamy is, is the biblical approach, and polygamy was entirely wrong. And I believe it was God's will for Jacob to marry Leah because she gave birth to Levi, who became the tribe of Levites, and Judah, who became David, who became the kings of Israel, who became Jesus, right? And so what uh, Jacob ended up doing is that he went for the best-looking girl, married her, and did it in the flesh, and did it wrong. And that's what is taking place here. But there's another evidence here as well of some hedonism. And that happens to be how Reuben betrayed his father. And for that betrayal, he was removed from being the number one inheritor of his father's estate, and Joseph replaced him, is what happened. Well, there's a lot going on here, but hedonism is the desire to live by the flesh, to live your life unrestrained, to live in a way that uh, pleases the senses, okay? And that's what hedonism is. That has got to go in order for God to come. Now, folks, we need to speak about something here, and that happens to be the notion that the kind of sexual desires that people have are natural. Well, they may be normal, but you've got to understand the desire for adultery, the desire for fornication, the desire for other sexual sins is not natural. It never has been, and it never will be. God never created anyone to sin. God never put in anyone the desire to sin. God never ever place that in any soul. He didn't ordain it. 
He doesn't author it. He's not behind it. He's not for it. He's not promoting it. He's trying to remove it. Now, it's not natural. It may be normal. It may be the normal experience of some people. But ladies and gentlemen, we've got to understand, just because it's normal does not mean that God created humans to behave and think and feel in that way. Those kinds of things have got to be put under the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say, anyone that's ever struggled with sinful desire can give it to God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be crucified and anyone can have victory in Jesus Christ. That's got to go for God to come. But there's a final thing as well, and that's found in chapter 36. Here in chapter 36, you've got a very lengthy family tree of Esau, Jacob's brother, the brother that he cheated and the brother that he deceived. And the fourth thing that has got to go is historicism. That happens to be holding someone's history against them. Now, there's some awful facts about Esau and his family in their history. One, they, from this point, uh, from after uh, the time of Esau, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, even into Matthew chapter 2, the people of Edom were Israel's enemies. They are mentioned 200 times in the Bible. And just about every time they are an enemy of Israel. These are the descendants of Esau. So Esau and his descendants happen to be enemies of Israel. And then from Esau came Amalek. And Amalek happened to be the father of the Amalekites. And they were the ones that went after Israel and tried to destroy them. In the time of Esther... There was someone that tried to destroy all of the Jews in the Eastern Empire. His name was Haman. And he uh, was just about successful until Esther appealed to the king. And then they cheered. And some think they helped the invasion of Babylon into Judah. And so Obadiah in Obadiah 11 through 14 chastises them and says, When the day came that you stood aloof and did not help Israel, you were as one of them. After Israel came back into the land, after they came back into the land, they were still enemies in Malachi chapter 1. Uh, Archaeologists have dug, dug around the area of Judah and then dug around the area of Edom and archaeologists have not found idols in Judah. Now, Judah had a problem with them, but they were not so extensive that they have been left in the archaeological remains. In Edom, it's an entirely different story. They are loaded up with idols, or were loaded up with idols, and archaeologists have found a large number of them. Now, the thing you probably know most about, about Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, happens to be one infamous descendant, Herod the Great and all of his family. Somebody said about the Herod family, it was safer to be their pig than their child. They would kill one another. And do you remember what happened with one of the Herods in Matthew chapter 2? He heard that a king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem and he sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to do what? To kill every boy two years old and younger. So here's what you have. You have a descendant of Esau going after a descendant of Jacob. These are the awful things, just a few of the awful things 
that Edom would be responsible for through the years. But let me tell you some good news that arises out of this text. I want to point out a couple things to you. Look back at chapter 35 and look at Jacob's descendants from verse 22 down to verse 26. The sons of Jacob were 12. Sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. Sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, Dan, Naphtali. The sons of Zilpon, Leah's maidservant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him uh, in Padam Aram. Four verses, 12 sons. These are the descendants of Jacob. Now look at the space that God gives to the descendants of Esau. Beginning in chapter 36 in verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Talks about his wives and a few descendants up to verse number 5. Then verse 6 goes on in another section down to verse 14. And then it talks about the chiefs that came from Esau, verse 15 to 19. And then other sons. You've got an entire chapter, chapter 36, composed of 43 verses on just Esau's descendants and those who became Edom. It's as if, now Esau is going to fall off the pages of the scripture at this point. But before he goes, God highlights this young man and lifts him up before the world in the most popular book that's ever been read. He won't let us forget Esau. But there's a second thing that takes place here as well in the text. Beginning in verse 31, look at the magnificent royalty beginning in verse 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Now God had promised Abraham that kings would come forth from him. And this is what happens. Esau happens to be a grandson of Abraham just like Jacob was. And God comes through and gives them royalty. Hey, in the time that Edom was becoming a powerful kingdom, and in that day one of the most powerful kingdoms to exist in the ancient world, Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And so the kingdom of Edom becomes a powerful, awesome kingdom. And those who rule happen to be those from Esau's family. Oh, there's more. Look at chapter 36, verse 7. Esau had to move out of the land of Canaan, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. And so he's highlighted with 43 verses. He gives birth to kings and kingdoms, and then he is wildly prosperous, so much so that the land cannot contain him and his brother Jacob and those that came forth from him. God prospered him. God is reaching out and loving and giving himself to Esau and his descendants because God is not willing and God is not desirous to hold anyone's history against them at all. Nor should the people of God. We don't hold people's personal history against them at all. Oh, and it's a good thing that God has not done that whenever people have come to him and trusted him on his terms in Christ. I uh, remember in my own youth ministry when I was a kid, not my youth ministry, but when I was in 
student ministry. Uh, I came to Christ, and um, two really, really good-looking guys in our youth group rededicated themselves. One became a pastor of a large church on the West Coast, and he's just moved to Virginia to uh, do some other work there. And then the other guy, I'm telling you, we were quietly jealous of him, but he looked just like Tom Selleck. He had the mustache and everything. And uh, when he showed up, people paid attention, and he would witness for Christ like a machine gun. It was wonderful. Um, God saved me. God turned those two guys around and then shook my high school for Jesus Christ. The thing is, though, our friends really didn't have much to do with us after that. Now, we weren't the most sophisticated bunch. There were these two good-looking guys who were just really open and bold, and then there was me. And uh, so when our friends were not open to the gospel, we went across the street where all the kids smoked. And we began to witness to them and to their pregnant girlfriends and began to tell them about Jesus. Started hauling them one after the other, and they started coming to Christ. They followed him in baptism. It swelled. It just blew up. None of their parents were supportive. In fact, some of their parents opposed them for what they were doing with Jesus Christ, would call them names and be ugly to them for following Jesus Christ and being part of the student ministry in our church. And out of that, out of that, God called five to ministry in that short amount of time. That reminds me of one of the great awakenings the United States experienced in 1904. It was powerful. It cleaned up the city of Houston. It cleaned up Galveston, gambling interested. It uh, started uh, Biola University on the West Coast. Southwestern Seminary got its start out of that as well. And the result was a great flood of missionaries south of the equator. They hit the nations south of the equator, Africa, Latin America, Asia, some other places, and they hit it with such force with the power and the presence of God that revival ignited there, and it is still going on 115 years later. It is not ebbed. Sociologists in that day were, uh, they were predicting the demise of the Christian faith all over the world and the dominance of secularism, and the exact opposite happened. Africa has gotten consumed in large part, not everywhere, but in large part by the Christian faith. Uh, Latin America has. Much of Asia has as well. So there's a powerful missionary movement in some of those places. I wish it was greater. We need to do more work, but in a few of those places it's happened. But here's the point. The Christian faith, revival, hit these places so strong, so forcefully, so hard, so that in a place like Africa today, you cannot understand Africa without understanding the Christian faith first, nor can you understand today's Christian faith and what's going on in the Christian faith in the world today unless you first understand Africa. The same is true for Latin America. The same is true for Asia. Listen to me. When God's people get right with Him and fulfill the conditions, God can burst forth with a new wave of power and His presence. And I believe these are more than just mere human words. God wants to do it here. God wants to do it now. He's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should be defeated. He's not willing that any should suffer. He's not willing that any should uh, struggle in their walk with Jesus Christ. He can come through with a new day of power, a new manifestation of His presence, if we will simply meet the conditions. Some things have got to go 
in order for God to come. Let's talk with him about it. Our Father, I thank you for the good news of the word. Thank you for your power. Thank you. Lord, there are some of us who remember days of great power and presence in Jesus.